and eventually one of the bootlegs winds up on the desk of a guy named Barry Coburn, who was a record exec with Combat Records. Combat Records famously signed Joni Mitchell and Carly Simon. <laughs> and... <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where friends, musicians, complainers, but most importantly, music fans tell the stories behind history's most influential albums as immortalized in the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. We'll hit some history, give you some context on the artist and album, and then dive into some of the actual tracks. We'll also be dropping in clips along the way, so don't worry if you're unfamiliar with the album or the artist. Now, as musicians, we've got nothing but respect for anyone with the guts and dedication to pour their hearts out on the tape, but it's also fun to nitpick the things you love. So just a warning, we're definitely going to be making fun of this album today. <laughs> now, at the end of all this, we're going to vote on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die, and then we'll randomly select next week's album. So as usual, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today. And since it's near the 2023 holiday season here in the USA, I wanted to share a heavy metal holiday recipe for you. Combine equal parts alcohol, liquor, pot, hash, opium, LSD, speed, speed balls, black beauties, mushrooms, quaaludes, heroin, cocaine, crack, morphine, Demerol, China White, methadone, buprenex. You're going to want to shake that at about 180 beats per minute until combined, and then check for deadness by poking with a stick. <laughs> Sorry, so stupid. My name is Adam. I've been playing music for 30 years and have played professionally for about a decade. And today we're talking about American thrash metal band Megadeth and their drug-fueled 1990 album, Rust in Peace. We'll get to our crew introductions in just a minute, but first let's jump right into the music with the first track off this album. It's a song called Holy Wars, ellipses, The Punishment Due. Now that we've got a taste of what we've been listening to this week, we're going to throw it around the studio today and get our crew introductions by way of a tweet-length review. So let's throw it over to Rob first. Thanks so much, Adam. This is Rob here, excited to get into Megadeth. But here's my tweet-length review. Guys, I'm sorry. I just prefer my music a little bit faster and more technical than this. I don't know what to say. I mean, maybe if they put a few more changes in it or like up the energy level... I could get into it, maybe. Sure, yeah. All right. Thank you, Rob. We're going to throw it over to Tom. 
Thank you, Adam. This is Tom. My tweet length review is that this album is like a stuffed crust pizza. All of the ingredients are there to make something amazing, but there is just a little too much cheese crammed into it for it to really hit the spot. (laughs) But it was 1990. All right. Thank you, Tom. This is Adam, and my tweet is that I'm very happy I discovered this album now and not 30 years ago. Because as of today, I'm probably only about three months away from being able to ask ChatGPT to replace Dave Mustaine's vocals with anyone else. Dylan, (laughs) Morrissey, hell, an auto-tuned dirt bike would sound better. (laughs) Oh my God, yeah. Talk about an album that made me love James Hetfield's voice. (laughs) (laughs) I did have in my alternate tweet, too, since there's only three of us, I'll throw this one in. Metallica earned the nickname Alcoholica. In that same tradition, Megadeth should have earned the nickname Meg Thedone. So <laughs> Meg Thedone. So I can see why you went with the first tweet. Yeah, Adam. exactly. All right. That was a that was an early one. I'll I'll cut that. But let's work our way back around the room. General impressions. Gents, how was your week? Okay, let's get this out of the way for any of the metalheads that might be listening. And I know you're out there because our Iron Maiden episode is one of our most popular from the back catalog. So I have to assume that there's going to be some stands out there listening to this. We're not metalheads. If that's not already clear, (laughs) that ain't us. However, I got to say this started with such promise. It rocked so hard at the jump. But like Adam... Dave Mustaine's, like a lot of metal, for me, it gets ruined when the vocals come in. And this was no exception to that rule. Dave Mustaine is the, everyone else in the band is a crazy virtuoso, including, I assume, Dave Mustaine on guitar. So it just seems so odd that he's the lead singer of this band, as opposed to some kind of operatic guy like Iron Maiden has, or had all through the years. Well, I don't think it's a surprise that Dave Mustaine couldn't keep another member in the band because <laughs> it is kind of a laundry list of people that joined the band and were thrown out for drug and alcohol use while Dave Mustaine is falling asleep in front of his guitar nodding off. I mean, like, oh man, you're doing too many drugs as he's like literally shooting up at the time. But listen, I came in hot with my tweet lane review about the cheese and I will stand by it. This album is cheesy, but it took me four listens. And after the fourth listen, I got it and I kind of loved it. I really did. I kind of actually loved it after the fourth listen. I was falling asleep. I was listening to it. It was very loud. And I was just sitting on the couch in the, with the sun shining on my back, kind of drifting off. And it just, it got me there mentally. It transported me. Oddly enough, I was super chill and relaxed <laughs> when so I listened awesome. to it. And I was just like, no, this, this is fucking amazing. And I was easily able to get past Dave Mustaine's voice. Once I got to that level, it was not easy to get to that level. But once I got to that level, I can get past his voice. And the fact that I don't think that he wrote any melodies at all for this album ever. That's, yes. <laughs> I don't think he ever wrote a melody. He's just kind of. Vocally, vocally, right. Yeah. He's, all his melodies are in the guitar and, and the music in the background. But yeah, his, <laughs> his vocal melodies are, are non-existent. Yeah. And the guitar melodies are killer. Kill, he can clearly write a good melody. It's so bizarre. And yes, my like you, Tom, I actually do have a mostly positive review here, even though I think there is plenty, plenty to make fun of or poke fun at, certainly. But the album rocks really hard. I get fatigued listening to this. So let's talk about your relaxation comment first. <laughs> 
I know I really sound like a dad now, especially one maybe from the 80s, but I can understand how if your teenager is listening to this, you're concerned. You'd be a little worried. <laughs> how can this not make you angrier and more anxious to listen to this all the time? I don't know. I think it is one of those things like riddling is speed, but it calms you down type kind of thing, you know? I used to drive down to D.C. every weekend to visit my girlfriend, my wife now, but I did that for two years, and I would hit that D.C. Baltimore traffic, and I would get so angry, and I would put on metal, and it would do that thing, Tom. Like you said, it pushed you over the edge where you actually calmed down because the metal was taking was taking the anger for you. Like, it was a, taking your burden. Yeah, it's like a constructive way to be angry. You're yeah. not just like, what am I going to do? You're like, no, I'm going to fucking rock, all right. <laughs> And this, again, it cannot be understated how much this album rocks. However, it is mixed with virtually no bass, virtually no low end. Am I the only one who was listening to this and was like, it is so guitar bright heavy and the bass is so buried in the mix. And maybe it's just the nature of this kind of music that it necessitates that a little bit. But as a bass player, I was hoping for a little bit more bass out front. I do want to talk about that at some point as we get into the actual songs, because there is kind of this magic trick that I feel that engineers and producers accomplish with an album like this, which is I feel like it would be so easy to have all this distortion just rubbing up against each other in the mix with like weird notes and weird frequencies. But I'm always floored when I listen to this because I can hear everything. Now, the lack of low end didn't stick out to me. I am going to go back and check that out. But I'm wondering if maybe if I had listened to this on speakers, maybe it would have come through more. I was expecting a little bit more rumble. And I have a nice sound system in my car, and I would have it cranked. And it wasn't getting that rumble Okay, kind of get. It's okay. very high cut through guitar sounds. And they clearly wanted to highlight the guitar. And for good reason, because the guitar is doing a lot of really great stuff in here. And again, I don't think, I'm not saying Danny Ellison is bad or anything like that. It's just, the bass was just unremarkable on the album generally. So kind of piggybacking on Rob's disclaimer, this was not in my realm, not just from like a genre standpoint, but this was about five to six years earlier than me. I played with some guys, you know, in my 20s and 30s who watched Headbangers Ball every weekend. And this was their music. That was not me. So this was really a new listen for me. And similarly, I came out hot in the tweet, but I really did enjoy this album to the point where I would not say it's, you know, number one, but for me over the last two and a half years of doing this, it's probably in my top 10 list of like surprise albums, along with like the zombies, that John Martin album. It's just that I've heard Megadeth referenced my whole life and had literally never listened to a song or at least known that I was listening to a Megadeth song. And then I put this on and it rocks so hard, as has been said multiple times. Well, it's not that surprising. This is where Prague went, if you think yeah. about it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this is extremely proggy or has a lot of the hallmarks of the stuff we would all say we like from the 70s. It's constant complexity and gu harmonies, guitar harmonies mostly. No, not much going on vocally, as we've already <laughs> right, mentioned. Right. Yeah, but you cut out the distortion and make the lyrics about anything other than war and death. And yeah, this could be a, you know, Yes album or something. Yeah, like that. I think I'll throw out another complaint apart from the rocking because I do think the musicianship is more or less impeccable throughout the record. I, I kind of think it can't be impugned. What did you say, Tom? There's just no denying that this rocks really, really hard. Yeah. So totally agree. I did get fatigued with it. Huge surprise. I can only take so much of it. 
I do also think there were some definite low points we'll get to. My biggest barrier to getting into this music is the fact that I sense that there is very little sense of humor about this music by the people who purvey it. Now, that's speculative, but I have to say that Megadeth did not break that assumption. Dave Mustaine doesn't seem like he's having fun. Dave Mustaine seems like he's a gigantic asshole. But lots of guys are assholes. That on its own does not bother me. I, I think we've covered it extensively on this podcast. I defended Morrissey, Lou Reed. Dave Mustaine is the guy that other famous assholes say is an asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Lars is an asshole and Lars thinks That's Dave Mustaine point. is an asshole. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It just, that just, that just struck me about it. That can, remains my barrier to getting into this super heavy technical music is the fact that it doesn't feel like they're having fun. And if someone wants to point me in a direction, listeners, please. But that's kind of what's holding me back from even embracing the cheese. Because even when you're talking about cock rock, there is a tongue in cheek element to it that I can really appreciate how hard they're rocking and they're kind of laughing to themselves. That's just what I sense when I'm listening to the music. But I don't sense that here. I sense a dead seriousness about everything. Well, and you talked about this album being unrelenting and overwhelming. It's very, very samey. I think my biggest complaint about the album overall is not that the album itself is samey. It is that the songs in and of themselves are samey. And there's so many changes. And oddly, that is what makes them samey. Oh, wow. Every song is just a cavalcade of changes all the time. And you're like, dude, just... Sometimes I just want to calm down and rock. You know, I want yeah. to get a nice, consistent <laughs> rock going on. That's what it felt like to me, too. It felt like there's a strict set of rules about this band, and you can never let people settle in. There's very few exceptions to that on this record. Every time it's starting to get groovy, we got to change it up. We got to change the tempo. We got to change the key, all of the above. We got to put the ellipse in there to make sure people know this right, is a separate section of the song. <laughs> the second half of this song. Yeah. So that's part of what makes it anxious to listen to it. I feel like there was some other record I'm not thinking of right now that we talked about where maybe it was Mars Volta. And I guess we reviewed that positively, but there's something about being on edge whenever I'm listening to it because I know they're not going to let me stay calm in one place. Yeah. Tom, you had mentioned Lars and the story of Megadeth runs parallel to Metallica, which we'll see. Now, I was not on our Metallica album. And so, uh, Rob, I'm going to have you keep me honest here as I run this parallel track. If I say anything off about Metallica, (laughs) I'm going to have you chime in if you remember anything. Hold on, Adam. I'm certainly not a Metallica expert, first of all. And two, to be clear, we covered the Black album, which was kind of later somewhat phase two of Metallica, let's say at the very least. And they have a couple albums on the list. So I think we purposely didn't go too deep into the backstory instead talked about their rise into the pop world. So just, just saying that, but yes, I think this is a familiar story and I'm happy to jump in. All right. So right off the bat, I was floored with the amount of drugs that were involved in the Megadeth story. I know we've covered black Sabbath, the the Rolling Stones, Metallica guns and roses, but these dudes may actually take the cake on just the sheer insanity of their drug use. So we can look forward to that in the story. But today we're going to really focus on the main creative force in the band, a guy named Dave Mustaine. And in prep for this week, I read a book by Dave Mustaine called Rust in Peace, the inside story of the Megadeth masterpiece. (laughs) He called his own stuff a masterpiece. Now there are contributions (laughs) from some of the other musicians uh, in the book, but let's be honest, Dave is, is pretty cocky and he's a lunatic as well. Now, (laughs) 
So take all of these stories from him with a grain of salt, maybe. I think at some point, didn't Alice Cooper have to pull him aside and go, yes. you're doing a little too much, man. Yeah. You need to chill out here. <laughs> well, but he also followed that very familiar path of now he is a born-again Christian who is actually pretty right-wing and used that as his drug rehab program. And good for him for getting clean. You know, I don't wish the life of addiction on anybody, but you don't then have to also become a dick about it. Well, that's the thing. You get clean. You're yeah. like, how can I be sober but still be an asshole? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he's perfected it from all the interviews I've seen. So he's a prickly pear, which I guess is kind of understandable considering his life, which we'll get into now. So Dave Mustaine was born in 1961 in a suburb of San Diego to parents Emily and John. Now, his father, John, was a branch manager at a Bank of America who lost his job due to automation in the early 60s. And he started drinking and drinking hard. So his father was a very abusive drunk. So in 1965, Emily, the mother, and John get divorced. John basically then stalks his family as Emily moves herself and kids around California trying to avoid him. So right off the bat, Dave doesn't really have a stable setting in which to grow up. He's not making friends. And on top of that, their mother, who is basically also a functional alcoholic, converted from being a Lutheran to a Jehovah's Witness when Dave was seven. That means, if you're not familiar with Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe in celebrations. So no more birthdays, no more Christmas. Pretty rough childhood to have all that taken away from you. Adam, is your goal here to turn Dave Mustaine into a sympathetic character? Is that what you're trying to do here? You have a pretty hard road to hoe here, but I I will hear you out. I will hear you out. I'm going to do my damnedest to tell you the Marvel-style backstory to this (laughs) supervillain. In addition to feeling alienated from everybody, Dave and the family is very poor. They wound up living with one of Dave's older sisters who married a cop. And this is how Dave really started to get into music. So this cop owned an extensive collection of 60s crooners. And so this is where Dave credits his love of melody (laughs) was listening to all these 60s crooners. I, I think it really only ever came out in his guitar. Did he have like an old record player that was set to 78? Putting the 33 and a third on it, and that's where he got the idea. This Sinatra kicks ass. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fly me to the moon, let me play him on your song. <laughs> so his mother buys him his first acoustic guitar as a graduation present when he graduated, I think, from middle school. He said later on in interviews in his life that he learned to play because his sister sucked at the piano so hard. So, like, why would you say that? You couldn't just say, I learned guitar because I wanted to play it. It was to show up your sister? And you're like 50 now. Asshole's got asshole, man. (laughs) (laughs) Comes through in everything you do. Yes. (laughs) So by 13, he started jamming, smoking pot with kids in the neighborhoods. And this is also the point where he discovers Kiss. And he becomes obsessed with their stage presence and lead guitarist, Ace Fraley. And now he knows that this is the lifestyle that he wants. He wants the fame. He wants the stardom. And at that same time, he brings home a Judas Priest album. And that cop that they were living with beats the shit out of him because Judas Priest is devil music. Not because Judas Priest is gay. That's not why. I don't think anybody knew at the time. No, I don't think that was out there at the time. Definitely not. So Dave moves out at 15 and gets an apartment and starts selling pot to make money. I don't know how that happens. 
again, he kind of brushed over those details. <laughs> Here's how that happens, by the way. Even your mom is like, you know what? You're such an asshole. You want to move out? Yeah, that works for me. Works for I don't have to deal with you every day. Yeah, go ahead. How about you just go ahead and get your own place? There we go. <laughs> in 1978, Dave is around 17 years old, and he drops out of high school and buys an electric guitar and joins a band called Panic. And Panic was definitely leaning towards hard rock, that metal sound. Now, tragically, that band ended pretty quickly when their drummer and sound man were killed in a car accident. And oh. not to write off that tragedy, but Dave needs to get moving. He's got he's to keep moving in his music career. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who aren't Paul and Linda? And are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash's Sandinista? Then Discography's the new podcast for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Our friend Dave Gebro and the guests explore an artist or band's entire recorded output and rate everything from zero to five stars. Some of the show's many amazing guests have included Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow rating the zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter rating their own work, Mike Watt rating Minutemen, Anthony Fantano on The Velvet Underground, and Bob Mayer on The Replacements. He's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You're not going to want to miss it. Discography is available. Wherever podcasts are consumed, we recommend you subscribe and listen. So Panic falls apart, and he starts looking in newspapers for gigs, and he stumbles across one that catches his eye. The ad said, guitarist wanted, someone influenced by Maiden and Motorhead and Budgie. Budgie was a Welsh metal band from the 70s. And this was all for a little band calling themselves Metallica. So Dave calls the number in the ad, and according to Lars Ulrich, the drummer for Metallica, Dave Mustaine is either coked up or on speed because they're on the phone, and Dave basically talks at Lars for like 10 minutes straight. Now, whatever he said worked because they asked him to come in for an audition. Now, as the story goes, Dave rolls into the rehearsal space. He plugs in and starts warming up. James Hetfield, who's the guitarist and singer, and Lars is the drummer for Metallica, both James and Lars leave the rehearsal room. So Dave continues to warm up and he's running scales and drills and he keeps turning the amp up because he's alone. So the thing's up at like 10, 30 minutes goes by and he's just in there playing and he eventually thinks, what the hell's going on? So he puts his guitar down, walks into an adjoining room where the guys are in there getting high and drinking. And he says like, are we going to do this thing? Are we, am I going to audition? And Lars looks up at him and says, now nah, you got the job. So without actually playing with him, something about his chops, his speed, his style was enough to earn him a spot in Metallica. I mean, it is the early days of this kind of music, right? So I imagine there weren't too many players who could... Shreddy Magoo. Be this... Yeah. For, yeah, exactly. Be this freaking ferocious. And to be fair, James Hetfield is not a virtuoso guitar player. James Hetfield is not nearly as good as Dave Mustaine at the guitar. Kirk Hammett is a good guitar player, but I wouldn't say that he is as good as Dave Mustaine is either. Like, Kurt Hammett's got an interesting style, but Dave Mustaine is a shredder. And Lars Ulrich is not a very good drummer. Listening right, to this right. album, by the way, the contrast, well, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. This is a drummer. Lars right. is actually just kind of doing a lot of like, boom, cha, boom, cha. Yeah, that's the open secret. No one in Metallica is actually that great at their Except instrument. Except for Cliff I Burton. Cliff Burton was great back in the Cliff day. Cliff Burton that was guy, really good, that yeah. Guy was a killer, yeah. Well, let me just comment. 
being the guitar player in the room or well, Adam's a guitar player as well. But I think Kirk Hammett is quite fast and good, but he's much more pentatonic. So he's kind of more blues based. And whereas this style is much more neoclassical. It cracks me up. Just, I think there's still a, a lot of animosity that exists in the fan community because the story that I just told about the audition was corroborated by Lars, James Hetfield, and Dave Mustaine. But in the Wikipedia history of Metallica, it said that they hired Mustaine because of his expensive guitar equipment. <laughs> so whoever's editing the wiki page for Metallica is definitely on Team Metallica, not on Team Mustaine. So in the fall of 1981, Dave joins Metallica and almost immediately the sparks start to fly when Dave gets in a fight with the rest of the band about what sneakers they should wear on stage. And that's because Dave already thinks that he's somehow the creative force in the band that he was just hired into. Are you surprised? Way to pick your battle, by the way. (laughs) What sneakers you're going to (laughs) wear. I mean, and you look at the early days of this kind of fashion, you were basically looking like a hobo you were functionally homeless looking nobody was a fashion maven it was ripped up shitty old clothes so did he have a preference on what kind of stains your sneakers should have on them or something what the hell that's a blood stain that looks like a vomit stain we should all got to coordinate the stains (laughs) metallica plays their first gig in march of 82 to about 200 people and immediately they are considered at the forefront of this new thing that's developing called thrash metal which has been described as punk meets metal. So think angst, testosterone, anarchy, and super, super fast tempo. So two months later, they score some gigs, I think maybe opening for some other bands at Whiskey A Go-Go, and they're getting some record label interest. Now, early on, Dave is showing his true self. He does this, throughout his career, he does this Jekyll and Hyde thing where when he gets drunk, you're not sure who's going to show up. Most of the time, it was the monster that showed up. Now, at this point, Metallica's bassist is a guy named Ron McGovney. And Dave used to just pick fights and get into fist fights with the other members of the band. And early on, was just establishing himself as an asshole. And the biggest asshole story I could find was that Ron McGovney, the original Metallica bass player, recalls a story where, for literally no reason, Dave Mustaine walks up during a rehearsal, and just pours a beer into McGovney's bass, like into the pickups, all over it. There's beer coming out of the input jack. So they fire him. No, not not Mustaine, McGovney, because he's not, quote-unquote, dangerous enough. And they said he didn't contribute anything. (laughs) He should have knifed him or something (laughs) like that. I don't get it. (laughs) But to your point, they then hire Cliff Burton. Okay, so... Dave's making himself known as a bad boy, a loose cannon, and quite frankly, a pretty scary guy in terms of his violent outbursts and depending on the drug that he happens to be taking at the time. So their stage performances in L.A. at this point are really making them legends before they even release any music. So Metallica's riding this underground wave of heavy British metal bands that were popular in the 80s and a super loyal but small fan base. And in 83, Metallica releases a demo tape and while Dave is already starting to fray a bit from drugs and alcohol, this was the closest thing to a family that he'd really ever had. Rob, I think in prior episodes, you talked about just what it's like being in a band. You know, you're, you're kind of a band of brothers. You're living in a van with guys for years. Absolutely. And you're constantly experiencing life at a young age together. And especially experiencing all the insanity that comes along with being in a metal band. Oh, I mean, we were not in even that popular in the chop, but those were some of the headiest days of my life. 
just that concept of like rolling into a city and playing a show, you felt like you were like this band of pirates coming yes, in to ravage totally. a city with your rock yep. and then dip out before the sun came up type of thing. I think there's just a really strong sense of us versus the world. You're either in the circle or you're not, you know, right. because you are also starting a business. You are also having fun. You're also having these wild times, but it's just us versus every other person and no one else can break into the circle. So in May of 1983, Metallica packs up and drives across the country in a U-Haul and they're headed for Rochester, New York, where they're going to record an album. Now, unbeknownst to Dave Mustaine, who would sleep in the back of the truck, James and Lars were listening to demo tapes of other guitarists on the ride to New York. So it's a bad sign for Dave. They're all assholes. All of them are assholes, as to, to quote the dude. <laughs> Bunch of assholes. <laughs> so they played two gigs in New York while they're also recording this demo. And around this time, Dave gets wind that the guys are working on a record contract with a guy named Johnny Zazula from Megaforce Records. And he notices that all the paperwork has all the other band members' names on it except his. Now, Lars assures Dave that it's just a paperwork issue. But then, on April 11th, 1983, Dave wakes up to Lars telling him to pack up his shit and leave and that he's out of the band. 40 minutes later, James Hetfield drops Dave off at a bus station with his guitar. James Hetfield is crying because he feels terrible about it. These guys were basically inseparable for two years, and this is the start of our Marvel-style origin story for Dave Mustaine and Megadeth. Did you get more, so I know there's a lot of contention around Dave Mustaine being fired. Some say it was because he had a worse drug problem, an alcohol problem, than the rest of the band, even though they were all clearly nuts. Some say it was because it was Dave and Lars Buttonheads and there can only be one leader in a band. Did you get any more detail on that or corroboration? He recalled it as, looking back in retrospect, was that it was his drug and alcohol problem and his fiery temper and all the fights. But to your point, Lars is the leader, and here's this guy who jumps in and says, no, guess what? I'm actually the leader of the band. Like, who the hell are you? So I think it's probably a mix. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle there. Dave Mustaine's like, I'm the guy who's actually really good at his instrument, so maybe that's why <laughs> I should be the leader of this band. <laughs> All right, so now Dave gets fired, and he's got a four-day bus ride back to Los Angeles, and he is crushed by the band's decision. But the sadness quickly turns to anger. He is steaming. His rage is festering. <laughs> he's the angriest he's ever been in his life. And it's on this bus ride that he not only commits himself to forming a revenge band, but also comes up with the name Megadeth. First of all, I love that it's a revenge band. Let me just say that. Dave Mustaine, hat tip to you. Revenge bands are great. But And the fact that you've maintained this anger for this many decades is really impressive. So he comes up with the name Megadeth on the bus ride because it was on a pamphlet for some politician that he found on the bus. Megadeth was referring to when one million people die from a nuclear blast. I'm assuming that concept spoke to Dave while he was festering on the bus for four days. So Dave said the mission statement of his yet-to-be-formed band was to be the fastest, the heaviest, the most furious metal band ever. And he also wanted to be the most dangerous band on the planet. Now, since Dave is on a four-day bus trip, Lars from Metallica starts calling people in LA to get ahead of the story and do some damage control. And he gives his version of the events. That story is, Dave is a lunatic, he's violent, he's dangerous, and he's an unpredictable alcoholic. 
Which is all basically true, but you shouldn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Good on Lars, though. That's That shows some savvy Machiavellian leadership, though, right yeah, there. Yeah, right, uh, right. Listen, maybe we're going to talk more about it, but I just want to get into the fact that this is one of the most compelling stories in rock and roll because when else has this thing happened where someone gets kicked out of a prominent band there's an acrimonious breakup or firing, and then they also go on to be a, a huge <laughs> band of themselves in the same genre. Yeah, to like quote the internet meme, I'm going to make my own band with cocaine and hookers, and then does it, and it kills it. Kills yeah. it. In that sense, bravo, certainly. All right, so Dave finally gets back to L.A., and he moves back in with his mother and starts hatching his plan, all the while being extremely depressed and drunk. Now, I want to introduce another key player in the story, and probably the longest-serving member of Megadeth other than Dave Mustaine, and that's a guy named David Ellefson. So another Dave. But this one is three years younger than Mustaine, and in fact, they used to call him Junior in the band. But for us to keep this all straight today, I'm going to refer to David Ellefson by his last name, Ellefson. So Ellefson was born in 1961. He grew up in Minnesota and decided to move to L.A. in 1983, when he was 22, to attend the Musicians Institute, which is a music college in Los Angeles. So Ellefson was living in his student-assigned apartment in Hollywood when he met Mustaine. And as the story goes, Dave Mustaine woke up super pissed because the person in the apartment below him was practicing <laughs> running with the devil on the bass. Which, if you're not familiar, is not exactly the most complicated baseline, but if your amp is turned up to 10, it could drive you nuts. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so Mustaine wakes up, I assume this is at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and trying to get Ellefson's attention, he throws a potted plant at Ellefson's air conditioner, and Ellefson comes upstairs, introduces himself, they start talking music, and they realize they both have an affinity for the same type of music, and this is where Megadeth really starts to take shape. Is this... Mustaine's version of the story that he damages this man's air conditioner and the guy just comes up and is like, hey, what's up, dude? How's it going? Do you like music too? Also corroborated by Ellefson. Okay. Ellefson came up and I think Ellefson was actually with a friend and they came up and I don't know if they were intimidated by Mustaine, but they said, can you go buy us cigarettes? And Mustaine was like, no, but I'll go buy a beer. And so then they all got drunk <laughs> okay so maybe they're just like real chill dudes like, yeah hey, right, man. right. Oh, wait. that's like on. underage kids needed someone with an id to get <laughs> them drunk to make Fair enough. but yeah. wait ellison's 22 so maybe i'm mixing up stories here all right i, I might, might also just up. be very poor that's that's a very big <laughs> one a struggling musician living in la yeah that that sounds about right so dave mustaine takes ellison under his wing i.e he took some innocent kid from minnesota and got him turned into a crack addict at the end of the day, and also turned him on to heavy music. So the two began auditioning singers, but they stopped quickly, saying that no one matched Dave's intensity and decided that he should be the singer. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's where it all went downhill. No one has the resting bitch face of Dave Mustaine, that's no, for sure. No. No one sounds like Tommy Pickles from Rugrats grew up and became the lead singer of a fucking metal band. <laughs> to round out the lineup, they got a guy named Gar Samuelson, who was a jazz fusion drummer, and one of his guitarist friends, a guy named Chris Poland. And oddly enough, these are the two guys who introduced Dave and Ellefson to heroin. It's always, always the jazz guys. So right <laughs> from the start, these two dudes were complete junkies, and they were the ones who got Dave and Ellefson into snorting heroin. All right, so now we've got all of our, our key constituents for a great band. 
killer musicians, booze, heroin, and a lust for vengeance. And in the super tight, close-knit metal subculture of LA, word had already started spreading about a band that was too maniacal for Metallica. Well, can we just take a pause here? They're heroin addicts, and they're playing this fast. Can you imagine yeah. what it was like if they were speed freaks? <laughs> <laughs> well, they would balance out. So they would take so much cocaine that it would take them over the top, and then they would use the heroin to mellow themselves down to play at 180 beats per minute. Speedballs, basically. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yes, thank you. <laughs> now, to throw even more fuel on this revenge fire, in July of 1983, Metallica releases Kill 'em All. And four songs that Dave had written were on the album, and he loses his goddamn mind. So Ellison recalls that at the same time they were working on writing songs and music, and after Kill 'em All comes out, Mustaine goes to rehearsal and takes everything up by like 30 beats a minute. He rewrites the lyrics so they're even angrier. <laughs> And in, and in 1984, Megadeth cuts a demo that's just under 12 minutes long and includes a song called Mechanics that's basically the same song as Four Horsemen on Kill 'Em All, but it's all about revenge, essentially. And I think it's uh, about killing people with your car. I assume, again, hmm. all the people being killed are probably in Metallica. Listen, I'm not necessarily on Teen Mustaine here, but... I'm with him on this one. If you left a band and had written a bunch of songs and they unceremoniously tossed you on a Greyhound back to L.A. <laughs> with no notice when you're probably like hungover and going through withdrawals and you were like, oh, just don't play my fucking songs. And like, yeah, sure, whatever, dickhead. And they put four <laughs> of your songs on their album. And then not only do they put them on your album, they then make it huge. Yeah, I would right. Be so pissed off. I'm supposed to kill them. To be honest. Well, they do credit him, right? Yeah, so he does wind up receiving royalties. So legally, they had to credit him for these. Sure, but he wants to be famous. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't just want writing credits on something or a check in the mail. He wants to be the most dangerous band in the world. I get it. It would be a powerful spite tonic, but (laughs) the royalty checks would soften the blow a little bit, right? Right. Well, but you blow them pretty quick when you're doing speedballs. They're not cheap. (laughs) All right, so... Megadeth cuts this bootleg demo and the tapes start going crazy. People are copying them, sending them all over the place. And eventually one of the bootlegs winds up on the desk of a guy named Barry Coburn, who was a record exec with Combat Records. Combat Records famously signed Joni Mitchell and Carly Simon. <laughs> and <laughs> Just, There will be a Yacht Rock thread at some point coming down the line. But anyway, so... This guy, Barry Coburn, sees Metallica's early success and rushes to sign Megadeth and get them into the studio. Now, despite being a raging alcoholic and heroin addicts, they managed to write and record and release their 1985 debut called Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good. For an independent label, it did pretty well, selling 100,000 copies with Combat Records. Don't leave out the ellipse in the middle there. Killing is my business, ellipse, <laughs> and business is good. Yes. Pregnant pauses are very important to this band. <laughs> now, in 1986, Combat Records sells Megadeth to Capitol Records, so now they got some real horsepower behind them. They record and release their second album in late 1986, but the entire band is in really bad shape, completely strung out. And Rob, this is when they were touring with Alice Cooper, and Alice Cooper pulls a 25-year-old Dave Mustaine inside and says, look, man, I've been where you are. I've done all the stuff you've done. You're going way too hard. You're going to die if you keep this up. And Dave, who was likely high at the time, promptly ignored him. 
And at this point, they are having fistfights nightly, destroying hotel rooms. The same week, Dave comes up to Ellison and tells him that he's got bugs crawling under his skin. So things are falling apart. The wheels are coming off. Gar, the drummer, is asking for more money from Dave to feed his heroin addiction. Dave says no, so Gar starts selling his drums. And Chris, the guitar player, is stealing Dave Mustaine's guitars and selling them for heroin. So things are going great. (laughs) Stealing his guitars... That's the thing he's going to notice as a professional <laughs> guitar player. I, it always baffles my mind. Like, the, what's the dismount strategy here? When Dave Mustaine comes back into the practice room and all of his guitars are gone and the guy's just sitting there with a big bag of heroin, he's like, I, don't, I have no idea how these things happened. I don't know. <laughs> so now Ellison and Dave Mustaine start smoking crack as well. And so this keeps going on, but eventually we flash forward to 1988 when Megadeth is on the Monsters of Rock tour in Europe, and Ellefson is in such bad shape that he has to cancel the rest of the dates on that tour for them so he can come back to the U.S. and get clean. Dave and Ellefson, I think this is the first time they both go into rehab to try to get clean, but they both are constantly relapsing. And in one of the craziest rock stories I could find about these guys, in 1989, Dave Mustaine is arrested for reckless driving. He ran into a parked car, which happened to have an off-duty cop inside of it. And that's a good transition point for our favorite segment, By the Numbers. All right, the number nine. That's the number of drugs that were in Dave Mustaine's blood when he was arrested for reckless driving that I just mentioned. He had 15 types of drugs on him. Can we guess the drugs? (laughs) You got to start getting into exotics at that point, because like I can name about six, and then it was in my recipe at the top. Yeah, China White, all these weird ones. Yeah, fifty million. That's the estimated albums that Megadeth has sold worldwide since their start. Five hundred. That's the dollars per day that Dave Mustaine was spending on heroin in nineteen eighty nine. One. That's the number of times that Dave Mustaine actually died from ODing. Spoiler alert, they resuscitated him after he took a handful of Valium in 1993. Now, he didn't say how long he was dead for, but according to him, he was dead long enough that the hospital called his wife to tell her that he died. But then, Dave Mustaine, come on, like, are we just supposed to think that you just sat up like the undertaker in a WWF match. Like how did, how did they call your wife without actually being declared dead? I don't yeah, know. It's pretty metal. If he did that, Yeah, it's very metal. Right. Also not metal enough. Cause didn't slash have to get the Narcan shot like five times on one tour or something in his like heart. That? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, Jesus. All right. 5,000 as in $5,000. That's the royalties that Dave Mustaine was getting once every six months from his contributions to that first Metallic album. 16, the number of studio albums that Megadeth has released. That's insane. I can't imagine. Sorry, just listening to how Rob, you mentioned how exhausting it was to listen to this. Can you imagine trying to get through 16 albums like this? Yeah, don't uh, don't let discography Dave give you a call about Megadeth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, didn't they also win a Grammy like in the last ten years or something? Yeah, yep, yep. I forget what it was for. And zero, the number of Grammys that was deserved. <laughs> yeah. Fastest album of the year. <laughs> All right, and eight thousand dollars was the dollars given to Megadeth to record their first album. 
the band immediately spent half of that on heroin and cocaine and then quickly went back to the record label and asked for another 4000 to finish the album. Story checks out. Yeah. Now, before we jump back in, I want to let you all know that we just set up a Patreon page for our podcast. So right off the bat, this show will remain free forever. So we, we don't want you to get worried. But if you want to support us with either a monthly donation or a one-time tip, we would be eternally grateful. We put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into each episode from researching to recording to editing. And we absolutely love doing this show and learning more about music just as much as you do. So if you're enjoying what you're hearing and you want to help us grow our audience, check out our Patreon link in the episode notes. Give something, give nothing. Either way, thanks for listening. Not just blood, sweat, and tears, Adam. We put Crosby, Stills, and Nash in there. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Well done. <laughs> How did I not make a dad joke with that? I appreciate you sw <laughs> swinging in to save the day. All right, so that brings us up to 1990. Now, Dave rightly fires guitarist Chris and drummer Gar for stealing all his shit. So they're looking for guitar players, and they talk with Pantera's Dimebag Daryl who was open to joining Megadeth, but only if his brother Vinnie Paul could come on as a drummer. But they already had their prior drummer's drum tech who was hopping in, and a guy named Nick Menza, who they hired, so they weren't able to bring over Vinnie Paul. Now, they wind up hiring a guitarist named Marty Friedman to fill out the new lineup. So Marty learned a couple of the tunes, knew the parts well, and was hungry for the gig. Hold on. If you're asking me, it's sight unseen, you ask me, is this dude named Marty Friedman a total shredder? <laughs> he doesn't have that sound to his name. <laughs> well, that's hilarious because I had another little note here on the Dave Mustaine is a dick column. He didn't like Marty Friedman's last name because it wasn't metal enough. So he told their manager that he wanted to hire him, but he'd have to change his name. And the manager was like, no, he's an established guitar player. He's got a bunch of albums under his belt and like, writing credits. He's not going to change his name. So eventually Mustaine just rolled with it and let Marty Friedman keep his last name. But we're coming up close now to actually recording this album. So they start recording in Rumbo Studios, which Ellison thought was called Rumble Studios, and he was really pumped. But then he learned that this was Captain and Tennille's studio, which is where <laughs> they were. <laughs> so right off the bat, they're all like, oh, really? We're going to go in here and write? We don't have to change the knobs. This is great. All the, all the settings are already good. So they start recording, and Marty is such a good guitar player that Dave got discouraged and felt worthless. He thought he sucked, and he relapsed. So... Dave had laid down the scratch track and then basically disappears for like a month while Ellefson is helping to lay down the drums, the bass, rhythm guitar, and all this stuff. Eventually, Mustaine comes back and records his guitar parts. So now here we are. It's October of 1990, and they release Rust in Peace, which is considered to be a landmark metal album. The band sold over a million copies of this album, but they're all broke because, for example, Ellefson has over $100,000 in back taxes and credit card bills. So they're going around signing albums, signing guitars. All these people think they're rock stars, and these guys are literally broke. But I'm sure still spending $1,000 a day on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you can be broke and still be a degenerate. Trust me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so in the interest of time, we're going to stop with our Megadeth story there. We'll leave a little bit of meat on the bones just in case we ever come back to them. I don't know if they have another album. They might have one more album on 
the 1001 list. They do. So we won't go too deep, but let's jump into some songs. Oh yeah, let's do it. Let's revisit the song that we played at the top. It is Holy Wars, Dramatic Pause, The Punishment Due. <laughs> I mean, holy shit. Talk about a mission statement for an album. This yeah, tune this comes out swinging. It really does. And I love the way that they have the time breaks right at the beginning. It, again, does not let you settle in. I was, on my first listen through of the song, a little, not discouraged, but they go into that, what I feel is a metal trope of that sort of three-note dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. I don't know if they invented that trope, but I feel it's all over metal. And I was like, oh, man, is this whole album going to be like this? And then it wasn't, and I was happy <laughs> right. about that. They didn't beat it to death or anything like that. But this was the song that I was, like, drifting off to sleep, and I was like, oh, my God. It feels like I'm, like, riding a dragon in a battle or something like that. It's fucking kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. This song rocks, dude. Yeah, I, I agree. I liked – the first time I put it on, I was excited by this and i think this is an example of a place where dave mustaine's voice does not get in the way too much right he has sure. a little bit of that hetfield growl and it seems like it might be in his range and it seems like he might have even written some melodic components to this we, we said earlier that a lot of the stuff the other songs where it doesn't work as well it just sounds like he had a notebook of lyrics that he wrote completely separate from any idea of songs and then just started shouting them at the microphone this, this one it works for me track rocks I was stoked by the end of this track, and then I think there were some ups and downs afterwards. I will say it gets a little monotonous when they slow it down, but they mix it up enough that you don't end up getting mired down in the monotony. And Rob, I 1 million percent agree with you. Actually, my note on this one is that you can tell when lyrics were written with no melody or song in mind, because the way that the phrases are like broken up over different parts of the melody is it's a mess it's just a total mess and i was not expecting the weirdly preachy lyrics that this album has <laughs> yeah they're weirdly preachy it's a lot of the government's gonna kill you and everything's terrible and everyone's gonna die you're like okay <laughs> i mean you and jk could be friends <laughs> <laughs> This, the lyrics on this record are pretty bad. Even a metalhead has bad. to admit that, right? They're, it makes Metallica lyrics seem like freaking poetry. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so he said he often writes from a standpoint of a character or something. So the first half of this song is all about religion and fighting religious wars and all this stuff. But then he said the second part of the song is written from the standpoint of Frank Castle, who is the Punisher. The Punisher. The Punisher. Oh, yeah. Marvel's, Marvel's anti-hero. So the whole thing, they killed my wife, they killed my baby, no more mistakes. Like that is all supposed to be him doing this as the Punisher, which I just thought was really interesting. So it definitely confirms my thesis that I was going to talk about later is that when I was young, I thought of this music as really dangerous 
And now as I'm old, I'm realizing that these guys are just gigantic fucking nerds. <laughs> just <laughs> super nerds. Totally. Totally. And super nerds that were angry about being nerds and found a productive way to channel their anger about being Hell nerds. Yeah. Certainly not into math and science, but into rock and hard. But it is not dangerous music in the way that, I don't know, like Guns N' Roses felt dangerous because they were just kind of talking about being total scumbag degenerates the entire time. And this guy's talking about... It's not quite Dungeons and Dragons shit, but it's, you know, it's not that far <laughs> See, off. but you said preachy, and I think it's it's half nerdy and it's half trying to be really elevated word salad, you know? And it's not really achieving that. I read something that this was inspired by an experience they had in Northern Ireland where he, like, started a riot by accident, knowing nothing about what was going on with the Troubles and yelled something out to the crowd that just like completely divided about the, the cause crowd. about the cause. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, uh, but also I think the beginning of that anecdote was that it started with Dave confronting a bootleg t-shirt seller in the parking lot <laughs> who <laughs> told him something about the cause. And then he just brought it to the stage. But I just like, I like thinking about that. that he's just walking around the parking lot before the show. <laughs> what are you doing? Like, hey, am I get my cut. Am I get my cut of those shirts. Come on. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of this song is the riff that comes in at 2.45 and kind of kicks off the B part. This was one of those moments where I think that riff is ultra badass, but the way it's recorded as well is really clean in that it doesn't rub up against anything. And that, that kind of stuck out to me that it was the really well produced guitar sound on this track. I've also seen Mustaine play this live in a couple of YouTube videos. And the fact that he can sing over that guitar rhythm in the beginning is super badass because it is not straightforward. He's not just quarter note or eighth note strumming or all downstrokes. Like it's a complicated rhythm and he's singing on top of that as well. So total badass. Super talented. I think that my favorite part of the song is that I'm going to, in quotation marks, call it slow. <laughs> if, if it was on any of our songs, it would be the fastest thing in the world. But that melody that's kind of like the high guitar melody, it's sort of at the beginning of that. Great melody. I have a note in there that it's kind of Steely Dan-esque, where Steely Dan will put those sort of single note melodies that just kind of lay over the top of the other complex stuff that's going on to center your listening onto something that is a little bit more accessible than the stuff that's going on. And it really, really worked. And then again, I thinking back, I'm like, that, that's actually pretty fast. But just compared to everything else, it seems chill and laid back and just kind of, oh, yeah, it's light and breezy little guitar. Like, but there. unlike punk, it's, yeah, it's the opposite of punk in the sense of the complexity. That's some really angular riffing and, oh, and yeah. complex yeah. rhythms as well, right, as you were saying. So, yeah, the, the technical nature of this band is undisputed, I would say. One of the first notes I took listening to this song for the first time was, if you don't like guitar solos, turn back now. Uh, because this song, yeah, there's yeah. like two or three guitar solos on every song. <laughs> and they kick ass. I mean, they're really good, but there's a lot of guitar soloing on. Yeah. I mean, if you're like 
touchstone is indie rock or something like that. And you come into this, you're going to be like, what the what fuck is, is going, going on, on here? Do people like this? And like, yeah, they do. And I do. I like this. This is really kind of a kick-ass song. I'm not necessarily going to put it on and listen to it every day or anything like that. But this could this could make the playlist. And for a song that is over six minutes long, which is a long song. You get to over four and a half minutes and you are in long song territory. It doesn't feel like they're belaboring any one individual part because there are so many parts to these songs. Playing a Megadeth set must just be an exercise (laughs) in like ridiculous memorization ability. That's true. Yeah, this song does go on a bit. I was... I have a hard time picking my favorite song on this record, I think, for that reason, because they all have something I don't love about them. And in addition to many things I do like about them. So I guess this might be my favorite song, but we'll see. We'll see as we go along. All right, let's move it along to the next song on our focus list. This one is called Hangar 18. Possibly you should have worked harder on the lyrics and melody. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, they're so bad. They're so bad. No, actually, I think the song rips so hard, but that is the cringe moment. I like a lot of the aspects of this song. The best this is the other one I was tempted to call my favorite, but when he pushes that cadence into that possibly I've seen too much line is so shoehorned in. But there are yeah. other parts of the song I really like. It gets into a... We probably played the intro to the song, which rips, cool harmonized guitar. The solos in this song are amazing. But then they have that hard left turn change at like three minutes. And mm-hmm. suddenly you're in the jungles of Nintendo's Super Contra. Right. <laughs> and then it jumps from that to the walk this way groove. Did you guys hear that? Rob, you and I have been friends for too long because my notes were possibly I've seen too much. Hangar 18, I know too much are terrible lyrics. <laughs> and this sounds like I'm on the last level of Castlevania. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I like I like that kind of music, to be clear. So I was really jamming to that part of it. I was a little surprised by the Aerosmith, but okay. This is totally, we've talked about mini bosses. And there's the other band. The Advantage. The The Advantage that do all the Nintendo music metal style. I can see those guys loving this. Totally. And hearing this and being like, oh, you know what this sounds like? This sounds like that awesome 8-bit Nintendo music. We should totally make a band about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. For for those who don't know, The Advantage and Mini Bosses are two bands out there. Um, They might both be defunct now, but their their music is out there. Tom and I saw Mini Bosses once at a small club, and it is proggy as hell. They take the old Nintendo... NES music, which is crazy sequenced synthesizer music in the first place. And they do these arrangements with distorted guitars and 
again, just so many notes furiously coming at you at all times. It's, it's wild. The solo swapping at the end cracked me up because it is Dave Mustaine and uh, Marty Friedman. Thank you. Marty Friedman, the guy with the terrible last name. See, Dave yes, was right. right. Change the name. <laughs> Mustaine sounds like a very metal name. Marty Friedman. It does. I'm always, I feel like back in the day, I thought his name was Dave Mustang and that he probably should have just changed his name to Dave Mustang and it would have been cool. It would have been pretty damn cool too. They do this thing at the end when they're swapping guitar solos back and forth where each time that pattern happens, they speed it up a little bit. And over the course of four or five runs through that, they actually boost the overall tempo by like 20 beats per minute over the course of two minutes. And it's deliberate. It's not like a screw up. Dave talks about it in the book. And I went back and listened and it does feel frantic as it's ending because it's getting faster and faster and faster. I'm not a classical fan really, but it throws back to classical music. It sounds like Flight of the Bumblebee or something. It's so arpeggiated, technical, fast. All right, let's move this thing along to Tornado of Souls. So before you say anything, this song is about a breakup. It's about a relationship. And the relationship was ruined because of drugs. And the only time that they were ever happy was when they were in the eye of the tornado. Listen, this is the best song title on the album. Tornado of Souls is a great song (laughs) title. And I think this is my favorite song on the album. I really like this song. This seems like he actually wrote a chorus melody. Yeah, I agree. This song rocks. Yeah, it's, this song rocks. I, I was really surprised to find this wasn't the single because I wrote the same thing, Tom, that it actually sounds melodic on purpose, as well as the guitar parts. It's not just about speed. It seems like it's very purposeful how they constructed it. You know, that said, about a breakup, are we talking about the Metallica breakup? Are you alluding to that? Because I feel like he's <laughs> oh. that guy who had one breakup from his one true love in high school and he's never gotten over it. That's a very good point. This has, uh, on a lot of Reddit threads, that this is potentially one of the best guitar solos in the metal genre by Marty Friedman. A lot of people hold this up. And it's funny, because I went and listened to it, and it's amazing. And Mustaine never even mentions that Marty Friedman played guitar on this song. <laughs> just He just kind of like sweeps past it. Even though the book was written in the last 10 years, and he knows that people talk about Marty Friedman playing the amazing solo, so... I saw that too, and I think we might have even mentioned it when we announced the record last week. And the solo definitely rips, but honestly, it doesn't stand out that much to me from the other solos on the record. So I was a little bit confused about that. It Maybe it's because it's paired with a more melodic song. The solo is itself a little more, has a beginning, middle, and an end, as opposed to just being an interstitial within the song. I, I wanted to mention too that I think one of the other reasons the song is one of the most successful ones. It's not just because of the melody, although that definitely helps a lot and it's lacking from the other tracks. They're using subtle dynamic changes instead of constant feel and tempo and key changes as in the other songs. 
that make it feel like a more cohesive single piece. Mm-hmm. You can relax a little more, even though it's super fast still. You can relax with the groove, if you will, of the song a bit. You know, Rob, you and I have done, for a song that I actually think came together very well, but we've done this concept of like the riff smash, where mm-hmm. everybody just writes a bunch of riffs and you smash them all together to make a song. Totally. And it can work very well, but it doesn't necessarily lead to cohesion. And a lot of these songs sound like, I had this riff, and this guy has this riff, and uh, I got this other riff, and you kind of smash them all together. And this one sounds like it was written as a song. Yep. And although I have said that this is my favorite song on the album, it also has what I think might be the cheese ballist thing on the album, which is the gang vocals on the who's (laughs) that comes in. Like, gang vocals almost never work, but the gang vocals on this song make most other gang vocals seem like a good idea. And they're never a good idea. It's really bad. Yeah, it is. I wrote that too. That's pretty silly. The punching of the one syllable. I can't believe we didn't mention, I don't think it occurs elsewhere on the record, but they added harmony for the first time to Dave's lead vocal. I missed that. Is that the only time? I definitely noticed that there was harmony and I was like, oh, that's nice, but it's notable. Just felt like there were extra production touches on this one, and that's why... It's the low harmony, too, right? Yeah. They kind of come up with a low harmony, which I always dig a low harmony. Yeah. All right, let's move it along. Next song on our focus list is called Dawn Patrol. Guys, you had a nice Rage Against the Machine style groove going on. I was into it. And then Count Dracula appeared. (laughs) My my note is he's trying to sound like a sexy Nazi. (laughs) It's really, really bad. So the story behind this is that David Ellison wrote a bass line. That really didn't did impress. Did he really write a bass Didn't <laughs> well, wrote. He's messing sorry, around. I'll say he played. He didn't write. Yeah. But it didn't really impress Mustaine that much. In fact, he thought it was pretty lame, but it kind of stuck in his brain. But Ellison didn't have any writing credits on the album at this point. So I think they just <laughs> included this so that he could get some royalties. It's a charity on the case. Overall. I get it. All right. <laughs> and it sounds like that, too. He's like, listen, man, crack is cheap, but you do need a lot of it. So I, I need to get some kind of some kind of royalty money coming in here. Mustaine also said that he uh, he had watched Time Cop with John Claude Van Damme oh, in it. Time Cop with John Claude Van Damme is my favorite John Claude Van Damme movie. I was like, my head cannon is that there's a scene in there where like, are you a Time Cop? You know, you have to tell me if you're a Time Cop. Right? <laughs> <laughs> You don't want to get into Time Cop and Trapman. You know, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I have not seen Time Cop, and I had a whole JCVD 
phase in my life. Rob, I know what you and I are doing the next time we get together <laughs> with nothing to do. Nice. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to the last song on our focus list. This one is called Rust in Peace, dot, 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 Polaris. Listen, the vocal affect again here is embarrassing. <laughs> I do yeah. not like this. As much as like we complained about Mustaine's normal voice, this is not a workable alternative. Well, that was my original take. And then I was thinking of this like, you know, 3D chess super genius thing where he got me longing for his actual <laughs> vocal treatment. <laughs> I was like, oh, you're a genius. Because when your normal super shit vocal kicked in, I was like, oh, thank God. Thank God we're back to your normal voice. <laughs> I, I pulled out the line, immense in my girth, erect, I stand tall. Oh, shit. Okay. I mean, these, these are I pretty mean, bad lyrics. I do <laughs> like that he is writing from the standpoint of a nuclear warhead. <laughs> Like, I mean, which is just pretty ridiculous. <laughs> but you, I'm picturing him, like, on the tour bus, just, like, writing about his erect penis, basically. <laughs> <in my laughs> what God. are you writing about? Uh, war, warhead? <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's got to discharge my payload, dude. Just give me a minute. I don't like, with the exception of Tornado of Souls, I don't really like any of the choruses. But this song has a good chorus. I think that the way that they chunk up the rhythm on the the warheads will all rust in peace, and then it kind of kicks back in. These songs are so just unrelenting to give that little break in it right there to signify to the listener that this is the chorus. I like. I feel like I'm a relatively astute listener of music. I listen to a lot of music. I can understand hip hop lyrics. I can understand Radiohead fucking lyrics. I listen deeply to music and i was often at a loss as to what was supposed to be the chorus in a lot of yeah. these songs because yep. they're just barreling through everything in a million miles an hour and the fact that they give you this punctuation in this song it's like oh that's smart it actually feels like a chorus well done yeah one of my only two redeeming pieces of this song was i thought the drums are badass and when i was just thinking about this guy nick menza and next to Lars. I mean, this intro drum beat is crazy. There is a steady double bass going. And then he's doing like a syncopated thing on the toms all while he's playing. And they do some cool stuff with the hits in the intro there as well. You know, they're playing with the rhythm and, and some of the hits. I thought that was cool. And what was what's this guy's background? Is he a jazz guy too? Because yeah, I did notice the drums. So he was actually the drum tech for their prior drummer. And so he would, I think he secretly was practicing and, and building up his chops with the assumption that he was going to get the gig because he could see Gar Samuelson going down the drain. And yeah. he saw the writing on the wall and thought, I am good. I will just learn all the songs. And when this guy ODs, I'll just slide in. And that's exactly what he did. I don't think it was secret. I 
was under the impression that that was a Dave Mustaine chess move. Where oh. He was like, I'm not going to throw you out of the, I'm not going to throw our old drummer out of the band, but he is so unreliable that I need to have somebody available oh, that could yeah, step right. in for him yep. if he just doesn't show up for a gig. So the and understudy almost. Yeah, he's basically, yeah, he's the understudy, which I will say, if you're a guitar tech or a drum tech or a bass tech or any of those guys, those guys are usually pretty fucking killer musicians. There's not a lot of yeah. people who are like, no, I don't really play, but right. I'm just really good at <laughs> tuning other people's guitars. Yeah. <laughs> and there are a lot of those stories of those guys getting the the nod. I'm thinking of that time where James Hetfield got that got burned on stage and then the guitar tech for him had to like finish out the rest of the tour because he knew all the songs naturally. Right. Right? Yeah. All right, so that's going to do it for our focus list. What we do now on every episode is that we throw things around the room to get those ever-crucial votes on whether or not you actually need to hear this album before you die. So, Rob, what say you? Boy, I'm really torn here, to be honest, because I did like the record, but it's hard to imagine everybody needing to listen to this. But you know what? What the hell? I'm going to say yes. I think that they achieved what they were going for here. It's fast. It's hard. It's unrelenting. They got their point across. And ultimately, it is an enjoyable listen. And this thread of music, of which they are progenitors, hey, is well pronounced. big enough and wide enough to pay some attention to. So I think it's worth a listen. Yes. All right, Tom. Yeah, I actually am going to go with a pretty unreserved yes. I Again, it took me a bit to get over the hump. But once I got over the hump, I really did like listening to this album. And I have listened to other heavier, faster metal. It's never Megadeth. And part of it was that Dave Mustaine has a reputation as being an asshole. And I was just like, yeah, hey, well, fuck him. But I definitely can see how they were forerunners and a bunch of bands that made very good careers later on copied a lot of what they did. And so I feel much more educated in the genre now. And this was a gaping hole in my knowledge of metal, not having listened to Megadeth. So yes, listen to this album. It's enjoyable and it's educational. Speaking of copying, I can't believe it didn't come up. Their approach to merchandising, which they ripped off from Iron Maiden, but totally I think also very successful. Maiden, yeah. Yeah, what's the name of the guy that they have? God, yeah, it's like (laughs) Eric the Monster or something. Yeah, whatever. Um, We call him Barry. Vic? No, 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 it's Vic Rattlehead. Vic Rattlehead. (laughs) Again, totally ripping off. Right, we need a mascot with a weird name, and he's also going to be a skeleton. Who else did that? But there's nothing wrong with ripping stuff good ideas off. That is a good idea. So I no harm, no foul. Vic Rattlehead. Ripping off Eddie the Head. Right. You can't use the word head in your blatant ripoff of the other person's mascot. You can't do it. All right. So I'll echo, Tom, what you and Rob said. It's a yes for me. It's a pretty easy yes for me. I really knew nothing about this band except the name. And again, I'm not super well versed in metal. So to have another touch point other than maybe Metallica, I think is super important. So I really enjoyed the week. I'm happy I listened to it. It's a definite yes for me. So congratulations, Dave Mustaine, Megadeth, and whatever iteration of band members you are on at this point in time. The album Rust in Peace, go listen to it. Can we talk for a second about the fact that there have been 32 members of Iron Maiden, of, 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 <laughs> sorry, of uh, Megadeth, 32 members. I missed the Gantt chart this week. Damn it. That is, that is one of those things where it's like, 
maybe there's one problem because there's been one consistent member the entire time. Maybe it's not oh, 31 funny. separate problems. Maybe it's one consistent problem. <laughs> All right, let's uh, throw it over to Rob. I think, Rob, you got your hand in the mailbag there? Oh, I sure do. Let me just pull my old hand out and read some of these letters that you good people have sent us. We have one here from Ray. He writes, I just listened to your excellent podcast on Jimi Hendrix. Are you experienced? I really enjoyed the deep dive into his family history and childhood, and the story of Hendrix meeting Clapton never gets old. A comment on the question of the first intentional use of electronic feedback on a recording. While I agree that this album revolutionized the sound of electric blues rock and pointed the way towards heavy metal, which we're talking about today, many people actually consider the opening sound of the 1964 Beatles track, I Feel Fine, to the first intentional use of feedback on a recording. You can probably even hear it in your head at the very mention of it. Keep up the interesting and insightful stories and commentary. I will point out that the subject line of his email was Hendrix Feedback. Oh, oh, good, good well subject line. That's done. very good, Ray. Well you done. got us. <laughs> Very well, very well crafted. Okay, uh, Theno, thanks for that, right? That's a really good point. I Feel Fine does have that feedback buzz in it. We'll put it on the playlist for y'all if you haven't heard it in a while. And one more here, a quick one from John from Vermont. Recently stumbled on your show and have been burning through the episodes every day for a month at work, in the car, while I'm cooking. I love the chemistry and the musical knowledge y'all bring to the table. I've listened to a lot of album deep dive podcasts enough to the point where I'm considering starting a podcast of my own where I review album review podcasts, <laughs> but yours always <laughs> makes me chuckle and always shines these classic albums in new and interesting lights. Thanks. and Keep up the good work. Awesome. Thank you, sirs. And if you all want to write us and make us feel warm in our hearts as that missive just did, or you want to correct us or add context or anything under the sun, send us an email to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, Rob. And now we're going to throw it over to Tom, who has got his arm, hand, something touching the albinator. I believe it has been brought out of storage. Yes, it was brought, brought out, out, of, out storage of storage last week. I forget. <laughs> My skeletonized hand that... Uh, <laughs> Riding away from the nuclear fallout of the <laughs> impending holy war is uh, going to press that button and tell us what we're going to listen to next week. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... By the way, the drum roll is actually going to be a double bass drum. Excellent. <laughs> Perfect, because this is yet another thrash metal album. This is Music from the Big Pink by The Band. <laughs> just right in that same lane you know sure. i can recycle most of my comments don't my write ear, melodies <laughs> my ears have the bends already <laughs> very stoked to listen to i feel like i'm familiar with that album i'm clearly familiar with the band as an entity but if you were to put me on the spot right now and say give me the background of the band i don't have it i don't got it and i'm very excited to learn about it all right, so there you have it. You've got your homework assignment. It's listening to the band's album, Music from the Big Pink, and that is going to do it for us today at 1001 Album Complaints. I'm Adam. I'm Rob. 